Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. I want to offer you a few quick thoughts before we begin here. Uh, first of all is uh, this. Um, if when we're done here, if those that are present, if you exit, uh, and I know it just started crashing rain, but if you want to step outside and you're taking off your mask, that's fine as long as you use some distancing but we're keeping them on while we are inside the building. And let's just take a moment and acknowledge that this is a completely, totally ridiculous situation, can we? Okay, yeah, we can acknowledge that. But it's what we have. And so um, the other thing I wanted to reference is that we are intending to maintain our on-site presence uh, for the foreseeable future, but we did from the very beginning. If we are seeing a serious issue in our community otherwise, we will uh, cease convening for a period of time. And so if that happens, just understand. And I guess part of that is to understand and appreciate what we have while we have it. We made a decision to do that to provide some contact points. And so for those of you that have not yet joined us, um, just realize this isn't always going to be available in that way. Um, having said that, we're not teasing you with that. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why. Maybe you need to keep off-site, and that's fine. For those of you who cannot wear masks, then uh, would you please contact us? Uh, we want to provide something for you if there's a medical reason as to why you cannot use a mask of any type. Now, I am going to ask for our technical people, if they're hearing me right now, to give me a hand signal because I'm seeing things that make me think that we are not live streaming right now. So if there is anybody listening whatsoever to what I'm saying, if you can give me a confirmation of that, because I'm not seeing it visually. So we are, even though this and this is that. So you're here, even though I don't see you. Um, so having said all that, I'm going to mention one, two things finally. One is this. Please be aware again of what I'm referring to as Penergy, uh, pent-up pandemic energy. It's a kind of a negative force. Uh, and be aware of how that can target situations either in your home or elsewhere. Uh, just be conscious of that. Had a number of emails. One of them had a really good suggestion that I want to implement. They suggested that even though we are not actively receiving offering, um, and we do have a positioning at the administra- at the um, welcome desk for the receiving of tithes and offerings, they suggested that we should still continue to pray over it. And I think that's a really good idea. And so before we begin and continue on, we're going to take a moment here right now. So, Father, we thank you. You have blessed us in so many different ways, God, throughout this entire season of time. And God, we take an opportunity to recognize that we lay our tithe and our offering before you in thanksgiving. We ask that you would bless um, both the gift and the giver and speak to us in this time we are gathered in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, what I want to do today is I want to talk to you, and first of all, I want to acknowledge this quickly. We are going to only have three more left in this series. This is one. There are two more in this series that will be being done on the book of Psalms, and then uh, I'm going to step away for just a short bit of time, uh, and we're going to be having two or three of our guests. We'd plan a larger slate, but we trimmed that down a bit, but we're hoping to have uh, two or three of our guests coming in here in August, um, but we have two more beyond this one, and today is dealing with, uh, with uh, not August, it's dealing with Psalm 90, and here's what I want to do with this psalm. I want to read you the first verse. And we're only going to take a second there, and then I want to come back to that first verse and expand on that at the end of things. Is that okay? Okay, please recognize I'm going to do it either way, all right? So that's what we're doing here, all right? Now, this particular psalm is really interesting, guys. The reason why this is such a fascinating psalm is it's understood to be the earliest of the psalms. It's believed to be written by Moses, And as much as some have tried to attribute that to some other Moses, uh, the scholarship of today still accepts that this was the original Moses, the prince of Egypt, okay? And so he wrote this, which means this is the first psalm ever written, even though it's 90 in the numbering system. All right, so as we look into this, part of what you have to do in reading this psalm to understand it is you have to not just realize it was being written by Moses, but realize this was written by Moses as they were traveling through the desert and had left Egypt. So fix that into your head. Now, to touch on the first verse, because we're going to come back to it later, Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations, throughout all generations. Okay. Now, when you're talking about dwelling place, it has an implication of a refuge again. The language used there is similar to a refuge, which is used several other places in the Psalms, And we talked about that even as much as last week. But it has a deeper meaning that I I want to unpack later. So when we think of a refuge, what we said in recent times has been like a fortress, last week we said, or like a high rocky place or, or some secure place. Maybe if we're thinking in modern terms, we might look, and I got a picture here of a decommissioned nuclear uh, site, refuge site. Now, it's, it's obviously kind of beat up and old um, and has a lot of rust and all, but you can still see the massiveness of the doors. And this is built way down in the earth, and you got all the cement and all the metal that's surrounding that. You look at that, and you think, that is a refuge. That's a place where when, when, when something happens, I'll, I'll be safe and secure. But I want to just drop this thought. Is that really where you want to live the rest of your life? That's a safe and secure spot, and it is a refuge for a short season of time. But is it the place where long-term we want to reside or dwell? Now, popping that up, he's sitting here and saying, Lord, you've been our refuge. Let's just take that one for a moment. Throughout all generations, okay? And then we're going to leave that there. Now, Going along here, second verse. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. This is talking about the, the, the massiveness of God throughout history. It's talking about how um, before anything existed, he existed. The solidness before mountains, before creation, from everlasting to everlasting, we're acknowledging you are God you, there's just something tremendous about acknowledging the God of the universe. Now, it goes on after this discussion about 
everlasting to everlasting timescale, the broadness, the hugeness of God, and, and the longevity, if you will, from eternity of life of God, if you want to put it that way, it then shifts to verse 3 where it says, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. Now, it's not implying that he's going around like, like you know, zapping people, your dust, your dust, your dust. It's, it's, it's mentioning the fact that in contrast to what was just said, everlasting, everlasting, that we're dust. We're short-term. We are in stark contrast to the awesomeness of God. He goes on and spells out more of the differences. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone by. A lot of times we do something called anthropomorphizing. We project human things upon God, like, like he was a human. And um, that's a little bit of a mistake because it can limit our understanding of him. So when it's sitting here and saying, for example, a thousand years in your sight are like a day, that's not just poetic. As human beings, we operate within linear time. The minute that just went past, we can't return to. And the hour or day that's about to happen, we can't comprehend yet. We live in this moment, and as that moment passes by, it's gone to us, and we don't comprehend what's coming next. We're in linear time. But to project that upon God, who created the very concept of time, is a mistake. And so what this is highlighting in this passage is a thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone by. Your sense of time is totally different than ours. You see all time at one place. It's a variation of, of, of reality. In fact, it spells it even more. Or like a watch in the night. Not like a watch in the night, but like a, a person who stands watch, which is four hours. So a thousand years to you um, is basically like a day. Or, or even less, maybe four hours. This is how massive you are throughout time and space, but it also tells us about God's sense of temporal understanding or identity. Sometimes we sit here and think, well, God's not doing anything because he hasn't answered immediately within our prayer. But you have to understand that God sees all those things at one time and that in the proper time, in the proper place, he's addressing that. It's not like he's lost track of it or is in a different galaxy, but his timeline is often different than ours and his timing is often different than ours. He goes on and says, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. So again, against the everlasting eternalness of God, you sleep, sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. I had an experience years ago. I was in Tanzania, and um, we came in in midday, and it was dry and dusty, and, and the ground was flat, and, uh, and it was just brown. Everything was brown. Uh, we were staying at a mission location at the time. That night, a monsoon hit. And I mean, I'm not talking like what you just heard out there. I just heard it rained out there, but I could hear a little bit of it in here. This was a nonstop deluge for hours. I mean, there were rivers that suddenly appeared that, I, that hadn't been there before. I mean, it just soaked everything. Now, I like storms, so I thought it was kind of cool. The next morning I woke up, and I will never forget this. I've never, this is the, the craziest thing in the world. Everything was brown. Everything is dusty. Everything's flat. It rains. When I stepped outside, there was literally a carpet of green as far as I could see. Overnight, with the drenching of the water, the seeds sprouted that fast 
They'd been dormant in the ground and with the, the, the rain had sprouted and there was a carpet of green spread out across the plain. Absolutely amazing to me how that transitioned in one night's time. As the days stretched out, the rain ceased and the sun came up. It went away just that fast. Now remember I told you, Moses is writing this. Where's he writing this? He's writing this as they are traveling and they're roaming through the desert. He would have seen this phenomenon. He would have seen the seed lay dormant and then suddenly spring up and then just as quickly die down. He's drawing from his experiences and what he's viewing as he's writing this psalm. In the morning it springs up new. We're like the new grass in the morning. But by evening it's dry and withered. It goes away just as quick. That's how much we are in regards to your greatness and awesomeness. He says we are consumed by your anger, are terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Look at the language. We're terrified when you're just indignant. Like, what were you thinking? We're terrified by that. We are consumed by your anger. Again, Moses is writing. So what would have Mo been thinking? A couple of possibilities. One is at one point in time after they've left Israel, or after they've left Egypt rather, he goes up into Mount Sinai. And while he's gone, the people think he's not coming back. They revert to idolism, melt down everything, a golden calf. He comes down and judgment has to be ministered to all the people that were engaged in that. Maybe he was processing the idea of what we talked about last week when we discussed the sons of Korah. The sons themselves were redeemed ultimately to become singers and in their longer term history to David himself. But Korah himself was a rebellious character and he gathered a bunch of rebels, rebelled against Moses, rebelled against God. And at one point in time, literally the earth opens up and swallows them in thunder and flame. Maybe he was thinking about the time when the people were rebelling again and grumbling and and vipers came and began to bite them and sicken them until finally one was lifted up on a bronze uh, stake and a bronze snake was lifted up and as people looked up to that, they were healed of that. And it was a foretelling of Christ's coming and on being lifted up on a cross. And as we look to that, how we are healed spiritually. But each of these would have had a meaning to him that when he's writing, we are consumed by your anger We are terrified by your indignation. You have set our sins before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. He was writing out of experience. He was writing out of what he had viewed and what he had seen. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our ears with a moan or another place as a sigh. In other words, our lives are like just a breath, just kind of like a, and we're gone. And then one of the classic lines that has been quoted before, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Original King James says three score and 10. And how many of you know what a score is in the old writings? Yeah, meant 20. So three score and 10 meant 70, okay, or 80, which is helping you now to next time when you read the Gettysburg Address and he says four score and seven years ago was how many years ago? 87 years. See, I, you're just going to appreciate reading the Gettysburg Address now when you go home, aren't you? Okay? Because I know that's what you're going to do. So that would be in the King James. And the language here, our days may come to 70, 80, if our strength endures. Our lifetime has gotten older, but that's still pretty much a classic. Interestingly enough, Moses, uh, we're told, uh, died at 120. 
Uh, part of that was to indicate how blessed he was before God to have a full and long life. But standards, 70 to 80, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. And then this line, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There's um, a passage in Ecclesiastes that says it's better to attend a funeral than to attend a wedding. Because at a funeral, we contemplate our life. We consider the limits on it and, and the, the, the shortness of it. At a party, we ignore all those things. And he's saying here saying that we would mark our days so we'd gain wisdom, so we'd realize the time we have is short. The things available to us aren't always going to be available to us. We are just in the midst of seeing the most transforming time in the history probably of the world, potentially, certainly of modern times. Things we took for granted are no longer available to us. Do you take these times just to moan and gripe about it, or have you taken these moments to sit here and say, okay, God, with what I have of my life, what am I to do with that? What wisdom do I glean from this? How am I to treat others different? How am I to approach you? How can I take appreciation for the moments and the breasts that I have? It goes on and says, relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy, be glad in all our days. And he links this to the 15th. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For as many years as we've seen trouble, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. He's saying, God, balance this out. We know that we've sinned. We know that there's certain things we deserve. But you're also, as we read many times, a God of grace and mercy. Let your grace and your mercy, let us experience and see those things out for as many as many nights as we have, give us daytimes of joy. For as many months of, of, of darkness and difficulty, give us months of fulfillment and joy. Balance this out for us, God, somehow. Then he comes to the final verse, which for us is not the final verse. But in the psalm, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. And then a curious link here. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So establish the work of our hands for us. And then he repeats that. Here's this being who um, is looking here knowing the shortness of time, knowing the sin that besets us and fills our world. What's the use of living? You know, in our modern society right now, we're at this frantic pace, some of us more so than ever before. We're working at home electronically, and there's no boundaries. And so you're working through lunch times, you're working through other times. We may occasionally lift up our heads and pause long enough to wonder just exactly what are we striving for? What is the lasting purpose in any of this stuff? And the writer's saying, God, if we're just a piece of grass that disappears, if you're so often we're awesome, we're so small, if, if all these things are as they are, What's the use of this? Establish the work of our hands. Have it have meaning. What we do, let it have some meaning to it. Ecclesiastes again says in verse chapter 3, verse 11, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Even though we're temporal beings locked within a linear time frame, there's something of us that is aware of eternity. There's something of us that is aware of something beyond this dimension. And we want what we're doing to have meaning and to last and have purpose. How is this possible? 
And why can the writer not just ask for this, but expect that it will be fulfilled? In Colossians chapter 1, we're told that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus Christ, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We, even our sinful creatures, even with the shortness of our lives that are just like a breath, for those who have come to Christ, we've been reconciled to God. Our sins are no more. There's a redemptive element, and he's making peace. All things. That includes our work and what we do, whether as a parent, whether as a spouse, whether as an employee, or whether as an employer that each of these things have a meaning throughout eternity. The term vocation is rooted in the Latin term vocare. It means to call, to have a calling. If you're a mother or your father, you have a calling to parent a child. If you're a spouse, you have a calling to your spouse. If you're an employer, your employees, people made in the image of God, destined for eternity, you have a calling in how you treat them. If you're an employee, how do you treat the boss who has to make the tough calls and tough decisions? I'm not a boss per se, but I have appreciated the emails I've received to just recognizing what our leadership team has tried to do in managing this crisis. It's been encouraging in the process. How do we respond to this calling? And here's what's really important. If our vocation, if who we are and what we do has a calling... There's an implication of that. That implies a relationship to the one who calls us. We're not just breaths that are gone. We're not just grass that grows and dies. We have eternity placed within our hearts. We're not by ourselves achieving what we're doing, but being reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is something eternal in what we do. We're not just doing it on our own, but the Holy Spirit works within us and establishes our work, placing his glory upon what we do. Therefore, it gives it permanence and it has lasting value and meaning. The knowledge of calling and of what he's speaking in this line here means that one's work is more than just a job. One's role as parent, spouse, child, whatever the case, has more meaning that what we do echoes beyond. I don't want this to get confused with work, so let me, let me clarify this quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3.10 says, By the grace God has given me, the apostle saying, I, built a, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one of you should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's our starting point. And then our works, our actions, our calling, all that comes with this is on top of that. If anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation's there, using gold, silver, costly stones, things that last. But there's also wood, hay, or straw, those things that don't, that have no eye for eternity, that are cheap. It says their work will be shown for what it is because the day, the day of judgment, will bring it to light. It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Follow what's going along. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So the works, the calling, the vocation that we have that's been redeemed by Christ's work 
if we do that with an eye towards eternity, towards biblical things, there's something massive about that that echoes outward that God says there's even a reward for later. If we ignore that, if we don't make the best use of our time, if we're petty in what we do, that's the wood, hay, and stubble that burns up. Now notice though, it was built on the foundation that's Christ. And what they're saying, what he's saying there is even if that's the case and you build poorly, you're going to make it to heaven, to put it bluntly. But it'll be like one that just got out the door. Everything in the house burnt up. You just got out the door before it went up. But there is a foundation that's secure. So, having looked at all that, and having come to the final verse, we're finished. But, I did say we'd revisit the first verse, didn't I? So let's take a look at that again. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. This is interesting on several different levels. Moses was someone who would have lived in a palace. That would have been his dwelling place. He had also lived on the backside of the desert. Now he's wandering the desert. He doesn't have a home. For the remainder of his life, for the next 40 years, he has no home. Now, I've traveled a lot over the years. And I love traveling. And one of the things I hate during the season is the inability to do that in the way that I'm used to. But even with me, there's a certain point after I've been gone for a season of time when I begin to think about home. And there's a part where I want to just come home. You see, home is not just a refuge, as we saw in the picture that was there. Home has a much deeper meaning. It is a dwelling place. It is a place where we live. It is a place where we have a safety and a refuge, and it's a place where we reside mentally, emotionally. As much as we go away, there's a part of us that's always home. Now, one of my favorite places on the planet is a place in Carmel, California. And, and I like it so much. It's cool. It's crisp air most of the time. Scent of pine in the air. It's right on the ocean. I really enjoy Carmel. So I thought if I'm going to retire at some point in time, and actually if that ever happens, I thought this is where I want to establish a place. And so I actually went to there and I explored and I, I looked at this one place. It was a, a two-bedroom bungalow with a very barely an inch-sized view of the ocean. I thought I could afford this, $1.5 million. $30,000 in taxes. I thought, not going to get that place. But when I'm, when I'm deeply stressed at certain moments, I have found that I dream at night, and I dream myself walking on the beach at Carmel, the white sand beach at Carmel. It's where I, in a way, reside. It's where I go back to. It's a place that has um, a sense for me of peace or quiet or safety. Moses is writing this. He's known palaces, he's known tents, but now he's wandering and he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. From the time Abraham left his home in Ur of Chaldees and found himself in Canaan, to the time when those children wandered into Egypt, to now as they're wandering on the desert, you have been our dwelling place. In other words, Lord, you are our home. You're not just our refuge that we run to when we're in trouble. You're not just that place of stark strength that terrifies our enemies and scares us a little bit sometimes too. You are our 
dwelling place. Frank Baum in The Wizard of Oz has Dorothy saying, there's no place like home. William J. Bennett says, home is a shelter from storms, all sorts of storms. Maya Angelou says, the ache for home lives in all of us. And Robert Frost, my favorite statement on this is, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And we've said of this place as home. For those of us who've had the, the privilege of being able to be present here, we sense that. And for those of you that are still with live stream of us, for whatever reason, we're not trying to tease you with this, but we want you to know we're keeping the place warm for you. And that even wherever you're at, you're still home. There's something about this evoking by a man who had no home who's walking through linear time and cannot recapture the days of his youth in the palace and doesn't know what's going to come down next to the line here. But he has such a relationship with God and he sees the history of his people and he says, Lord, you have been not just our refuge, you have been our dwelling place. You are where we reside. You are where our heart longs for. You are where we are safe and secure and present. No matter where we wander, even if vipers come and give us sickness out of the desert, even when we stumble and screw up and do horribly dumb things, you are our home. You are our dwelling. And you've heard, of course, the line, I'm sure. Home is where the heart is. And I'm sure all of you know where that came from 2,000 years ago. I'm sure you remember Gaius Plinius Secundus, right? Old buddy of all of ours. Also known as Pliny the Elder. To just differentiate him from his nephew, Pliny the Younger. He was a military commander in the Roman army. And um, he was an author. And he was the first one, this man who would have spent many times and years away from home in service of the state, to say home is where the heart is. In other words, it's where we reside It's where we find refuge. It's where our mind turns to when things are tough. It's a shelter from all the differing storms that come. And Moses, having left the palace behind, wandering the desert with these rebellious people, knowing the breath of life, he still would have known that God was present with them, that he was not just a refuge, but a place to build a life on, to, to be secure in. There would have been times he would have gone up into the mountain of Sinai and in that secret place to have met with God. The other times he would have walked in the tabernacle, even as we have today. There would have been times when everything was going bad and crazy and it seemed like everything was insane. He would have walked into the desert and found a quiet, secret place with God and there to linger and realize that no matter where I go, no matter what happens to me, God, my heart, my mind, my soul, my spirit finds its dwelling place. 
It finds its place of rest in you and all the things that come against me and all that I go with and all that I've forgotten and all that I can't anticipate. doesn't matter because whatever happens, I am secure in the palm of your hand and it's there that my spirit dwells. And so when everything else is chaotic around us, we can go to that secret place and even as Moses Recall why he began the song and psalm about the brevity of life and the awesomeness of God, the work of our hands that we want to see last for eternity, the redemptive power of grace, that he begins it with, Lord, God, this morning, we acknowledge that you have been our dwelling place. And if somehow in the midst of all the insanity we have lost track of that and thinking it's all based on, on what we can see and touch and feel, I pray this morning that you reassure all of us in this place that worship you, all that are listening by live stream, that you are not just our place of refuge. You, oh God, of eternity and of beyond are our dwelling place. And we live Isaac Watts, hymn writer in 1708, did a paraphrase, an old hymn, (laughs) new at the time, um, on Psalm 90. Our God, our help in ages past is the title of it. The last stanza reads like this, O God, our help in ages past, our dwelling place, our hope for years to come, be thou our our guard, while troubles last and our eternal home. Let that be your prayer for this week. I was in prayer the other day and I was really encouraged because I felt like from the Lord he said that he was going to dissolve all these issues the next day. And then I remembered that a day is like a thousand years. So... I'm not sure how rushed I am to see that. Whatever happens, let God be not just your refuge, let him be your dwelling place. Let him be where your heart resides. Let it be where you turn to. Let it be what fills you, even when you're out and about and traveling and far from home. I pray that we're able to continue on in this um, for some season of time. We'll see, and we'll play that carefully. If when you leave here, you want to go outside, if it's not raining, and you want to take a mask off and keep distance from someone and talk, that's fine. But while we're in the building, let's just be careful. And this, this, please respect people's space. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a contact person too, but hold off the hugs right now outside of your own household, all right? Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your vision. I thank you, Lord, that even as awesome as you are and we're like a piece of grass that come up and go away the next day, that you have a love for us. You have a consideration for us. You know the hairs on our head. You, 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 you care. Encourage, I pray, Lord, those present and those that are viewing from afar. Encourage us and guide us as we go forth. Speak to us in these remaining two messages, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.